This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome everybody to the amazing world of podcast land. I'm David Merrill. <laughs> and I'm Patrick Edwards. We've been having a lot of fun getting this episode started. <laughs> I'm get, we're started. So it's we're, all good. We're started. We're we're rolling. Yeah. So I'm getting ready to go on a moose hunt. My brain is obviously not in the studio, but my body is here. I've got Patrick with me today. You gonna do some fall fishing? Oh yeah, it's coming up quick. Gearing up and getting ready. I'm really excited. Get ready to meet a true outdoorsman, a fearless predator hunter, wildlife conservation champion, and force to be reckoned with. His journey is one for the books. An avid outdoorsman is an electrician turned knife maker turned professional auctioneer. John's passion for the wild knows no bounds from stalking coyotes to introducing new people to the thrill of hunting. He's a whirlwind of outdoor energy, but not all. John's a wildlife management heavyweight serving on committees, chairing the Utah's Wildlife Board, and raising over $50 million for conservation. He's a trailblazer in safeguarding our national treasures. Join us as we drive in this, join us as we dive in this adrenaline-pumping hunting tales. You know, his commitment to preserving our wild spaces is electrifying. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you for a little while. So let's just right off the top, let's take us all the way back. This is where we start with everybody. How'd you get into the outdoors? Where did it start? Oh, I think the earliest uh, memory I have in life was sitting in a in a pack on my dad's shoulders while he was snowshoeing. And uh, I remember looking over his shoulder and seeing the snow coming through the... the uh, rawhide weave on his snowshoes and so i you know i ever since i was one or two years old i've been running around the mountains with my dad he's 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 pretty much a modern day mountain man he's 78 years old and still spends every day on the mountain with his dog and his mules and so i i probably come by that the whole hunting and outdoor thing pretty honest i just i i didn't know people didn't hunt when i was a kid growing up i just everybody hunted i just thought that was everybody did it and then you come to the city and meet people that didn't hunt i did i couldn't believe that so (laughs) what do they do with their time yeah no and i'm i was a city boy turned country boy at at a young young age my dad loved to fish but my first hunt was oh we did some waterfowl or a deer trip now and again and his whole family grew up there in utah and they we'd go home for the annual deer hunt opening weekend, right? So he he hunted as a young man, but as an adult, my dad was into fishing, so I didn't get exposed to it like you did. And I grew up reading Zumbo and watching Shockey and and doing those things. And every Saturday morning while other kids are watching cartoons or talking about the latest video game, I could not wait till the latest edition of Outdoor Life hit my my mailbox because I read that thing cover to cover. My favorite was always yeah. the last story in the back because there's always some calamity and then watching deer, elk, or antelope on TV. <laughs> I got mad every time the turkeys and the whitetail come on. I'm like, come on, get those out of here. Let's go back to Africa, kudu, or <laughs> give me some adventure. I, I couldn't believe that people even filmed turkey hunts back then. 
You know, I remember the first time uh, my folks hooked me up with a subscription to Outdoor Life. And like you, I would read that thing forward and back over and over until the next one showed up. And, you know, we didn't have, of course, the internet or social media or anything like that. It was print media and whatever you might get on the three or four channels you had on TV, you know. And so, yeah, you know, outdoor life, building stream, things like that. That was that was huge to me growing up. That was, other than that, the only, you know, the only exposure to other people's hunting experiences is just your buddies at school, you know, telling whatever lies they could come up with, try to outdo you. So I got a VHS tape. I think it was Glenn Berry's, you know, and I wore that tape out watching elk hunt and listening to bugling. And it took me a decade to get one with a bow, but Patrick Lowe's that's, that's what I live and breathe for is to go chase elk with a bow. I'll do other stuff and I've done it, but I'm not skipping that. So how did you go from electrician to, to knife maker to auctioneer? I mean, and then to commissioner, right? Let's 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 hear this journal. Yeah, I, well, I like grew up farming down in Central Utah. I uh, always thought I wanted to be a farmer, and then moved up to the city and got a job for the state as a electrician, and went through an apprenticeship. And you know, it's been geez, almost thirty years that I've been putting wire nuts on and running wire and stuff, and it's a good job to know how to do it. I wouldn't say I'm super passionate about electricity, but it's a good job. It's a good skill. Where I grew up down in Manti, down in San P. County, custom knives down there are a, are a big thing. I grew up down the street from a guy, Steve Johnson, S.R. Johnson. He's known as in the knife world. And I mean, me and him could make a knife and it could look somewhat similar. And if I put my name on it, it's worth 300 bucks. If he put his name on the same knife, it's worth 5,000 bucks and people would wait five years to get it just because he's so well known and well respected in that, in the knife world. And I went to school with some guys that are full-time knife makers. You know, it's just a, it's a fun community to, to kind of be part of a lot of, a lot of things people get into, you know, they learn how to do it and then what they know how to do is kind of their secret. The knife world is is real different. It's you learn how to do something, and then you share it with everybody. And the more people you can teach how to do it, you know, the happier people seem to be. So it's a real it's a real neat world to be part of. I wouldn't say I'm a a really good knife maker. I've made some knives I'm pretty proud of, and it's fun to when it's your buddy's birthday or something like that to, you know, give them a knife that you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into. I gave Jan a knife for her birthday a couple of years ago, and she seemed to think it was all right. So that was, uh, that was a good thing. She says that's one of her favorite presents I've, I've given her. And so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of really good people in the custom knife world, and it's just, you're, it's, one of those things where you're just never quite there. There's always something you can do better, always something you can improve on. It's pretty fun to go out and, you know, shoot a deer, shoot an elk, and then dress it out, cape it, skin it, everything with a knife that, that you build or one of your buddies build. So how did you transition into the auctioneering side? Because I'm always curious to hear about how, how do you even do that, man? Like I hear people do the auctioneer thing, I'm like, how do you learn how to do that? So kind of help me learn a little bit about that. 
Well, I so I got into I got involved in some local sports organizations, and they asked me to chair an event, the annual banquet here in Utah County. And of course, we needed an auctioneer, and so I hired a guy to be the auctioneer, and he did okay. But the whole time I was uh, standing by him on stage, and I thought, you know what, bet I could do that. And I, you know, growing up on a farm, a kid who'd been to a lot of auctions. I'd always somewhat been a little interested in, but I thought standing next to this guy, I thought, you know, I bet I could do that. I bet I could do as good as he's doing, like, pretty quick. I bet I could learn that. So I I came back and to work and got on the internet. And, and this is, I remember this is one of the first things I even remember looking up on the internet. This is how long ago it was. And I looked up an auction school and got looking at auction schools and found one back in Minnesota and told the family, called my mom and dad and told them, I think I'm going to go to auction school. My mom says, oh, honey, you talk way too slow. And I, <laughs> I says, well, yeah, that's why you go to auction school. So, And then my dad called me back and said, if you'll go, I'll go with you. He said, I'll, I'd be interested in that and I'll go with you. So me and my dad went back to Mankato, Minnesota, and it was about a eight or 10 day school and you'd start at eight in the morning and you'd go till 10 at night that really on number drills and about the second day they took us to to a farm sale where they were just selling a bunch of old stuff out of a farm that somebody was selling off and we walked in there and the guy that ran the school grabbed me and stood me up on this old hay wagon and said you're up and I says you know I'd been doing it for a day and a half and I was you know, kind of panicking. And he said, you're up. And the guy said, all right, you're selling this. It was an old fish aquarium. I think it was all broke to hell. Nobody would bid. I mean, I was begging, but nobody would bid. Finally, the guy that run the school bid a dollar like a mercy bid just to help me get on with the show. And then I sold a couple of busted cake plates. I think one of the other guys in the class bid like a dollar for, and I thought this is, this is not going well. And I turned around and looked, and when I was done, he told me, get up there and sell two two items. And so I sold my two items. I think I made two bucks one. And I turned around, and everybody else in the school, there was probably 20 of us. Everybody else was lined up, getting ready for their turn. And he, uh, he told me, he says, I knew if you'd get up there and, and kind of break the ice, everybody else would be in. <laughs> and so, you know, that was day two of auction school. By the time we were a week into it, and about done, you know, I was... I was picking it up pretty good. And that first year I came home and I think I did one or two auctions. You know, I had a lot of 4-H clubs and that at the high schools. They're always looking for auctioneers, church groups, and things like that. And I think I did maybe two auctions that first year. And the next year I probably did five or six. And then it jumped up within three years to where I was probably doing 30 or 40 a year. And now I do. I don't even know. Sometimes between fifty and sixty a year, so it's it definitely grew. But you know, it that's one thing I I've really really enjoyed, and everything that you know that we do now is is kind of geared around the auction season and the auction schedule. And I mean, I even met my wife at an auction. You know, we we Janet met at an auction at the Hunt Expo probably, I don't know, it was probably eight, eight, nine years ago. 
I sold one of her skulls that she beaded up and donated, and that was how I met her. And, you know, years and years ago, of course, I've known her a long time. But... So, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. People ask me all the time, you know, that oh, we'll run into them at Walmart or something, and they're going, hey, weren't you, the, weren't you the auctioneer the other night at the high school van or something like that or whatever it was? And Jan will go, yeah, do it for them. Show them, do it for them. I'm like, it's not something you do, you know. It's not like a, not like a card trick or something. So, I get that all the time, though. She's always willing to volunteer me to throw people in the grocery aisle, how to, to auction here. But I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's been kind of a fun niche in the outdoor world that's really allowed me to go a lot of places and meet a lot of neat people. Well, your dedication to wildlife management, right? Switching gears a little bit. You know, you've been involved in various committees, advisory councils. What I mean, your passion on stage when you're in these auctions, it really does come through that what your background is. So talk about that. Speak to that. What you know, what is it that drove you to being on these committees? And then give us a little bit of insight to these committees, what they do and why they exist. Well, so in Utah, Utah's divided up in five regions. As far as the Division of Wildlife Resources go, they manage kind of, it starts within five regions, and each region has what they call a regional advisory council. We shorten it up and call them the RACs. And each RAC is made up of between nine and 13 or 14 members. There's sportsmen's representatives. There's ag representatives. There are, let's see, there's elected officials. There's public land representatives, somebody from either the Forest Service or the BLM. There's non-consumptive representatives, which they tend to lean a little bit to the office of how I see things. And so I had some real interesting discussions with those folks, but that's all right. They, everybody's entitled to a seat at the table. And so there's five of those councils in Utah. And in the central region, I got appointed. Uh, you apply and then the governor appoints you. And I was a sportsman's rep on the Central Region Advisory Council for eight years. And then when your term is up on the racks, it's pretty standard that everybody applies for the state wildlife board. The wildlife board, a lot of states will have a commission. Ours has a board, which functions very similar. And there were seven members on the board. I was one of the representatives from the central region each region has at least one member but you can't have more than two members from any region i was a central region representative on the wildlife board for four years and then the last two years i was the chairman of the wildlife board the regional advisory councils hold meetings and they take input from the public then they go and report to the wildlife board and make sure that the the sportsman, but it's it's a lot more than just the sportsman. We get cattlemen show up, we get non-consumptive anti-hunters show up, fishermen, all kinds of people. Every everybody that has any stake with that has to do with wildlife come to those meetings and give their input. Then the chairman of that regional advisory council goes and reports to the wildlife board. It's a it's a really good system because it it provides a real means of continuity for the public to be heard and a lot of states will have a you know a commission meeting or and that's all they got i mean if you want to 
talk to the commission, you go to the commission meeting. Uh, I feel like Utah has a really good way of having, there's meetings all over the state in every region. People can go to those. They can also go to the wildlife board. Each region is reported to the wildlife board. Once the wildlife board votes on it, say they want to increase deer numbers in a unit and decrease elk numbers. Well, it goes through the racks, the racks vote on it, then they report to the wildlife board. The wildlife board votes on it. Once the wildlife board votes on it, then it goes into the proclamation. It becomes rule. It's a very, what's the word I want to say? Intricate. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a very well thought out and kind of complex system to make sure that people are heard. Now, there was a lot of people that had come to wildlife board meetings wouldn't get what they wanted, and after the meeting, they'd say, well, you didn't listen. I got that from the anti-hunters all the time. You didn't listen to me. Oh, no, I listened to you. I heard every word you said. I totally understand what you're saying. I just totally disagree with you and think we need to go another direction. A lot of times, even with the ranchers and the cowboys, we'd argue about how many how many elk we should have on the mountain or how many deer we should have on this unit. And, you know, coming from a 100 years at ranchers, I can definitely see both sides of the of that coin, but we had a lot of really, really in-depth discussions with a lot of different user groups, and I learned that if people at least felt like you listened to them most of the time, they were okay with you disagreeing with them. If you they felt like you didn't listen to them, they weren't so okay with it. And the anti-hunters a lot specifically would say, well, you didn't listen to me. No, I listened to you. I just, I just disagreed with you. I just, a lot of times the ranchers and the cowboys, I mean, these are guys that I know really well. I see them at the coffee shop in the morning. I see them at the feed store. And we all, we would always disagree on the number of elk that should be on the mountain. But it was a very civil discussion. And it was a very civil disagreement. And sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd go their way and sometimes we'd go the sportsman's way. Sometimes you had to, you had to vote against your buddies because you felt like it was the right thing to do. I had a lot of friends thinking I was going to jump on their position, hook, line, and sinker when I voted against them. I got some pretty interesting texts during those meetings. But, you know, it was it was a very, very interesting and educational time in my life to go through all that. I learned a ton about wildlife management, why we do the things we do with predator management, with you know, ungulate management, deer, elk, turkeys, bighorn sheep, all those things, they all have their challenges. And then to kind of tie that back into the auctioneer business, when I go to the expo or the sheep show or, you know, Safari Club or Dallas Safari or wherever we're selling and sell a permit that I've worked on the management plan for that unit, I can kind of tell them, hey, you know, the elk on this unit are doing really good. We've, you know, we've cut the numbers. We've done some water projects. This is a great year to have that tag. Or, you know, I can tell them, hey, this sheep unit is really coming on, and we've done this, this, or this here. So it's kind of fun to be able to speak to that. <laughs> no, it's it's pretty interesting because wildlife commissions have been in the news at least re- recently in Colorado because I know there's a little bit of a stink about people being appointed that. People don't feel belong on those commissions because of their anti-hunting well, stance and whatnot. Well, and in Washington, you know, the Washington Commission up there, a couple of their commissioners told the hunters, you need to be worried. Hunters need to be worried. What are you doing? Right. How do these people 
you know, that don't, they are blatant anti-hunters. How do they get appointed? I will, I will never know. Well, I do know. That's, that's the sad thing is I do know. I know exactly how they get, get appointed. That goes to show you right there, elections have consequences. Elections have consequences. And, you know, Utah, where I live, is a pretty red state. I spend quite a bit of time in Wyoming and Idaho and Montana and all pretty red states. The red states, I can tell you their predator management and their wildlife management reflects that it's a red state. Washington, Oregon, Colorado, their predator management and their wildlife management definitely reflects that they are a blue state. And you can follow it right to the governor's office every time. You know, the governor appoints the commissioners and the board members out whatever system they have. And those commissioners and board members have a huge say in how things are done and how things are managed. So if you don't think your vote affects your hunting opportunity and and your life in the outdoors, you need to think again because it definitely does. We can go for hours about consequences <laughs> and impacts of that, you know, and We've talked about it several times, and we can talk about these non-consumptive hunters, right? I I buy my federal waterfowl upland or my federal waterfowl stamp every year, right? I also go do upland hunting and buy a permit where they do pheasant releases. And yes, pheasants are a little different; they're non-native. But let's go back to the waterfowl piece. How many millions of acres of wetlands have been conserved by hunters' dollars? It wasn't by anti's dollars it wasn't by non-consumptive and i i really disagree with that term non-consumptive because if you're in the mountains you're putting pressure on deer and elk and putting pressure on deer and elk they can't get to all that feed because they're going to leave those i mean colorado you want to hike the 14 peaks great but you're pushing those elk off those peaks that could be up there summer grazing and you are having it might be a a minuscule impact on that one elk but to say you're a non-consumptive user group and you're not harming the landscape if you're there you're having an impact period there was a couple of meetings when i was on the regional advisory council i was kind of young and a little reckless on the microphone and told them a couple of the non-consumptive and that's what they're called on the on the rack is the non-consumptive i told them i said you're not really non-consumptive but you are definitely non-contributory <laughs> i don't like it i don't like it but it was you know it got it kind of got a chuckle out of everybody and uh while i was on the wildlife board we were having a meeting about a crow hunt because utah was one of very few states that didn't have a crow hunt and they were having troubles in some orchards and vineyards and they needed to institute a crow hunt so they could do some depredation hunts and oh my goodness it was it was the most unbelievable fight i think i've ever seen over any wildlife issue here in the state <laughs> and they uh they showed up and they, this one old boy stands up there and says you know i've been a hunter for years and years but what you're doing is just disgusting i says well sir grandpa's shotgun in your closet does not a hunter make and he didn't like that at all and i they asked me what what exactly i mean i says well people say they're a hunter they're not a hunter just because they got grandpa shotgun in their closet. They're not a hunter. You know, he's not a hunter. And and then I told them also, I told them, you know, we have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. That's why we have wildlife. And 
oh my heck, the newspapers grabbed that and ran with it. And I was the dumbest guy in the state. And how could anybody say that? And you know, now the more I've thought about that, it's been probably eight years since I said that and it came out in the paper and I got beat up. It is so true. It is so true. You know, you talk about the duck situation here in Utah. We have a bighorn sheep now. I can't even remember how many permits we had, but when we started selling permits, there were six bighorn sheep permits in the state. We took one, we sold it, we started doing projects, we started transplanting sheep, and now there's, I don't know if there's 50, 60, or however many there are, but there's way, 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 way. We do more habitat work than the rest of the country put together. We do more collar studies than the rest of the country put together. We've put on over 11,000 radio collars on Let's see, I think there's deer, elk, bears, lions. There's some on sheep. There's some on goats. I mean, basically all your big game animals, there's a collar study going on because of the money that sportsmen have raised through the sale of permits. And, you know, the antis, they can they can cry all they want. Nobody raises the money that sportsmen raise. Nobody does. And puts it right back on the ground and puts their money where their mouth is. And so we can have, you know, that discussion and that argument with them all day long, but you know, the proof's in the pudding and the proof's on the ground. Sportsmen step up. They, they blew me up in the newspaper. Like you can't even believe, you know, the wildlife work chairman that we have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. Well, you know what? It's truer every day. And every time I think about that meeting, well, went on there, it's true. And it's more true every day. We have it because of hunters. We have our wildlife because of sportsmen. And I mean, the, the science and the data points exactly to what you're saying. There's two places on this globe that wildlife populations have increased, South Africa and North America, right? And what is it? The North American Wildlife Conservation Model. We've hammered that on this podcast before. Our listeners know what it is, but it's it's true. I mean, we hunted bison, turkey, white-tailed deer, elk, antelope to the brink of extinction. And the sportsmen stepped in and said, wait a second, hold on. And we implemented a whole bunch of things along with national parks. That was the sportsman's dollars and the sportsman that started that. And today there's more white-tailed than there ever has been. I mean, grizzly bears on Kodiak, Alaska, we've talked about this. We started hunting them in fratricide, dropped. There's more grizzly bears on that island than there ever has been. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, you look at the success stories that we have as sportsmen and here in Utah, big horse sheep, mountain goats, turkeys, even our, our deer and our elk are benefiting because of the, you know, the studies and the things we're doing. We do so much habitat work here. And now we've, we've been doing the collar studies. They'll go out and they'll catch a doe and they'll put an implant in her that when she, that makes a signal when she has a fawn. And so within about two days they go out and catch the fawn put a collar on it and put a collar on the doe the two collars talk to each other through bluetooth and if the fawn gets too far away or puts out a mortality signal and doesn't move for a certain number of hours the doe's collar sends a radio signal back as a mortality and they go find the fawn and see what killed it and I mean, they're gathering all that information within a few days. And so 
there's no guess as to whether it's eagles or lions or bears or coyotes or drought or it got hit by a car because within a day or two of that mortality signal, there's a biologist right there taking, getting the data. And it's amazing that more, well, it's amazing that more states aren't trying to find ways to fund these things. It's expensive. It's really expensive. And we do it because we sell permits. Now, people say all the time, well, Utah sells a lot of permits. We do sell a lot of permits. We sell more than anybody else by a long ways. We also do more projects than anybody else. We put more collars on than anybody else. We do more acres than anybody else. So, I mean, I guess you got to decide what you want, you know. If it's worth it, then some people said, you know, that some people tell me, well, I'm just morally opposed to selling permits. Oh, okay. I mean, that's fine. Then you can have that opinion. I'm not. I'm very proud of. Now, I don't think we ought to sell all of them. I think you got to regulate it really closely and make sure you're doing things right. But I'm really proud of what we've accomplished and, you know, the money that we've raised. And, and you know, we did a count. Jana told me the other day, she says, I think your number's off. We need to update your bio. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I think your $50 million is pretty low. So we started adding it up. And I think we're north of $200 million now that we've raised and that I was part of. I didn't raise that money. You know, that the Sportsman Fish Wildlife, the Mule Deer Foundation, the Sheep Foundation, they put on these giant conventions. They go out and get the permits. They, they bring the people there and then they trust me on the stage with a microphone for an hour to get everybody's money and keep them entertained and talk them into coming back next year. So I have a very small part. I have a very visible part because I'm kind of the guy on the stage, but there is a lot of people that do a lot of work getting those permits there and ready to sell and get the buyers. So when I say we've raised, you know, $200 million, I was part of raising that money. I was, you know, I, I, People ask me all the time, well, how much money have you raised? Well, I've been part of raised for quite a bit, but it's it's definitely a team effort. You know, Jan has raised a bunch of money through her. I think she's over 100000 bucks that she's raised with her skulls that she's donated for different causes. A lot of artists will donate things. Outfitters will donate hunts. And, and it's a, it really is a great thing to see how passionate people are how willing they are to donate, how willing they are to get involved in their own way. And collectively, you know, what we're able to do, what we're able to accomplish. And the end result is the wildlife benefit, right? If you can conserve one acre of ground, whether that's in a, you know, kind of CRP, perpetual trust, however, however that money and ground and whether it's a collar study, all this kind of funnels back into one thing. You're protecting habitat and improving that habitat and that doesn't just benefit the elk or the deer or the sheep that you're looking at. That benefits the squirrel and the chipmunk and the butterfly and the snake, right? Everything is in balance. And especially where you live right now, uh, that front range is, I, I grew up, when I was a kid, we'd go deer hunt down there with my dad. And it, those foothills were loaded with deer, not houses. And it's as, as humans continue to encroach in wild spaces, we're going to keep having these conflicts. And we don't have organizations like... I mean, there's a hundred on the list. We could go through them, but Elk Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, Turkey, Pheasant, Duck, Trout. And there's a there's an organization for your favorite species that is doing boots on the ground work. So put your money where your mouth is. Join one or twelve of these organizations, right? 
Yeah, me and Mike Smith, that's another thing me and Janet were doing. We were going to a Dallas Safari Club event the other night, and uh, she got counting them up, and we are either live members or members for, I think, a dozen, 12 or 13 conservation organizations. And, you know, it's, there's, being part of all those organizations and going to all those events, you meet, there's so many benefits. There's so many benefits. Obviously, the wildlife, we're protecting hunting, we're protecting the habitat, we're introducing new people to conservation. You meet some of the funnest people on the planet when you go to a banquet. I mean, there is always a drunk guy sitting on the front row spending way more money than his wife wants him to spend. And I'm here to tell you, they are a gift to an auctioneer because you can tease them and fraud them. And I mean, and she's mad and she's cussing and he's throwing money around and it's, you know, it is so fun. It is so fun to raise money and just be part of the whole conservation movement that's really strong in our country right now. And, I'm really grateful for everybody that comes out and, you know, I, I get invited to those things because I'm the auctioneer, but I also realize there's people that budget all year long so they can go to a banquet so they can, you know, spend it, you know, they have five or six or $800 or $300 so they can take their kids and their family and go to the banquet and be part of conservation, be part of the, of the hunting movement. And, you know, it's not, it's not all about the, the millionaires and the the rich guys spending all the money. There's a lot of people that are very involved that are as common and blue collar as they come that sacrifice, you know, six, 800 bucks a year because they believe in it. And, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a family outing. They, they come every year. The kids look forward to it. Well, my company's had a booth there at the Western hunt the last four years in a row. And I've been in the crowd in attendance, right? And it was electrifying this year with those two tags, right? And I've heard a lot of people talk about, and what we're talking about is the two tags, one went for 550 and that was a record. And then the next night I wasn't there, but I think it went for seven and a quarter. You can correct yeah, me. Seven, the first one actually went for 500. The antelope island tag was 500 and the Arizona tag was 725. And, you know, we, we never, I'd never sold the tag for 500. The closest I'd ever come to that was about 10 years ago in Reno at the sheep show. I sold the, I think it was here this last year, the year before I sold it again for 460. And I thought, well, you know, that's probably the size I'll ever get. Yeah. When the antelope Island tag went up to five, I thought, holy cow, you know, there's another record we'll never touch. And I, a couple of the outfitters told me, hang on buddy. Cause we got, we got the horses tonight and they always tell you that. They always tell you, watch me. I got my, you know, my guys in, we're going to buy it. And when it started jumping, you know, 50,000, a hundred thousand a pop, it was, I stopped right before we sold it. And I looked around, I'm like, what, what are you doing? You know, what's going on? You know, this is a deer tag. We're not selling anything else. This is a deer tag. The guy that bought it, he was sitting right by the stage and he waved me off a couple times. And then I was almost to sell it to the other guy and hit, oh, all right, all right, I'll get back in. It was, no, I've, I've had a lot of discussions about that tag. And I've had a lot of people 
on both sides of the fence. Oh, it makes hunters look bad, or it's making it a rich man's game. I, I had a couple of guys that I talked to about it, and they says, well, it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And I says, well, would you have bought it if it would have sold for $100,000? Well, no. Well, we're sacrificing that permit to the money gods for conservation anyway. We owe it to everybody involved to get as much money as we can for those permits. If we're going to sell it, blow the roof off. If we're not going to sell it, we're going to put it back in the draw so that everybody has a chance at it. Okay, that's going to cost us a lot of habitat work and a lot of projects, but and some people would rather do that. They just they don't like selling permits. But my opinion is if we're going to sell it, if I'm going to sell it for 5000 I'd just gonna sell it for a half a million because the permit's getting sold anyway. We owe it to everybody involved, whether it's, you know, the people that didn't draw the permit because it got put in the in the auction to the kids that would have drawn it 10 years down the road everybody involved we owe it to all of them to get the absolute maximum for that yeah and it goes back to basic logic right it's like you can sell that tag through the normal process for a hundred bucks or we can get seven hundred and twenty five thousand dollars and put that money back into conservation it's about getting people to realize it's forward thinking. It's about taking care of that animal, that species, so that we can have them on the landscape when our kids are going out to hunt. You know, I'm born and raised in Wyoming. They started doing commissioner tags, right, where they started raffling those and right. selling those off. That has done so much for Wyoming wildlife, and people were really opposed to it, right? Everybody was mad about it. But it's like, you wait, and you see, and you start seeing those sheep tags go for all that money and those elk tags. It's like, you know what? It's doing a lot more benefit, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. And we did a little math, and I, I should have, I think I have written down on a pad on my desk at work, but I think it's like 11,000. That guy paid for like 11,000 non resident deer tags or something like that. I mean, it was some astronomical number that you would have to sell that many deer tags to make that much money for the Arizona fishing game. And one permit that guy you know covered that many that many permits so now do you want to add 11,000 permits or however many it came out to to the to the draw in Arizona if you did that they would lose their mind down there because they probably don't want that kind of pressure added and they don't want that many deer harvested so a lot of the angst against the auction permits in my experience is jealousy people are jealous that somebody is a little better off or is budgeted or went to school and worked harder or whatever the reason and they can afford a permit and somebody else can't i'm not buying those permits i ain't buying a hundred thousand dollar permit i booked a grizzly hunt for next year and i've been working extra hours and scraping every dollar i can get together to figure out how i'm going to try to pay for it i'm not i'm not buying those those permits but i see the good that it does and i'm grateful that the guy that bought it who's the i think he's a car dealer from nevada he's a probably worth a billion bucks i'm glad he's into hunting and wants to donate that money to hunting instead of the humane society you know instead of defenders of wildlife instead of the grand canyon trust or all these other anti-hunting groups that we deal with around here all the time i'm glad he's willing to to write that check to, to mule there. 
Well, I hope that I hope the state of Arizona does does a lot of good with it. Well, no, actually, it's doing the opposite because. What you're doing is in one shot, you're getting a whole bunch of funding that helps pay for the wildlife managers, the studies, all these things to happen. Whereas to your point, we could raise the price sky high, you know, and keep the permits low, but nobody wants that, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. And trying to get people to think through the basic logic of the situation, it's like, this is one tag. It's going to bring in an astronomical amount of money that's going to support wildlife. Or we could sell a whole bunch of tags to your point, or... We can raise the price of everyone's tax and no one wants that. So it's always good. Like, so, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you hear those discussions, think through all of that because again, your decisions have consequences, right? Like if you say, well, we don't want to do these commissioner tags. We don't want to do these auction tags. Well, you you can go that route, but you're going to lose out on a whole lot of funding that really does help that wildlife. When I was on the wildlife warden, we'd have to raise permit fees once in a while and you'd only raise them a couple bucks people would show up and lose their mind and guys would say listen i have six kids and when i put them in or i put all of them in for all these hunts and yeah you're only raising it five bucks but it's going to cost me another 150 bucks to put my kids in or i got you know to some people that's that's a lot when you're young and got a family and you're trying to make ends meet so you know there's definitely two sides to that coin it doesn't bother me at all to sell permits. Like I said, I, I think it's a great program. I'm glad that as many states do it as, as do. I wish a few more of them would see the benefit and, and get on board. You know, and I, I've taken a lot of criticism. I've, you know, that right after the expo last year, there was, you know, a couple of guys that got on their podcast and talked all kinds of trash and we don't know where the money goes. Give me a break the most audited money on the planet you know the state of utah you can come down and go to the division of wildlife the state of utah every dollar is already accounted before we even sell the permit there is projects lined up for years to come in order to put that money towards a project it has to be okayed by the wildlife or by the habitat council it is the most audited money on the planet. And for people to say, well, we don't know where the money goes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes and do a little homework. But they don't want to do that because then it takes away their art. You know, and then these guys, they get on their podcast and they talk trash. None of them ever call and ask me, explain it to you. Okay, you sell the permit, then what? They don't do that because it takes their argument away. And then it takes the fun away, I guess, that they have by talking trash. So, I, you know, I get a little... I get a little frustrated with it, but it comes down to jealousy, people being jealous. I'm grateful that as many people see the benefits as do. The facts and the science are always going to out those that have that knee-jerk emotional reaction. And you talked about some of those groups. Their, their ultimate goal of some of those anti-non-consumptive, uh, I guess non-contributory groups is what I'd like to call them, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> is, is to close gate and remove human presence from the landscape completely and that's forever so one of the you know coming from a blue state and i'm not going to throw them under the bus because i have a hundred times but predator management is something that is very controversial it's something you're passionate about something jana's passionate about something i participate in wholeheartedly how do you go about it how do you introduce people to it tell people why predator management is a good thing because that that charismatic megafauna people are always it's okay when you shoot a turkey 
I pull a, I pull a, any kind of fish out of the lake. You know, I pull a catfish out of the lake. Be like, great, get that ugly thing out of here. You know, you pick, put a picture. Go ahead, yeah, or a carp. Yep, or a carp. Pat, Patrick has the pending state record. Some sucker state records, but like, yeah, people are like, get those fish away, you know. But man, you you talk about a grizzly bear to your point, or a mountain lion, or a wolf. Holy moly! Yeah, I I answered the phone one day from New York, which I thought I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm gonna. I answered the phone. It was a reporter from the New York Times, and there was three other guys that were above me on our sportsman's group website in the magazine. But they didn't answer the phone. I was the first guy to answer the phone. Reporter from the New York Times, and he wanted to know what I thought about the delisting of the gray wolf. This was back, you know, a few years ago. I said, I don't think it has much to do with the actual wolf. I said, to me, they are using the gray wolf as the silver bullet to kill the culture of the West. And I mean, energy development, public land access, grazing, any kind of sport trophy hunting, whatever you want to call it. Anything we do out west that the eastern greenies don't like, that's why they're behind the wolf, because the wolf is silver bullet to kill the culture of the west. And he quoted me to a T in the New York Times, and I'm here to tell you, it was unbelievable the amount of hate that we got I mean, people were going to burn down my house and just all kinds of stuff. It was, it was interesting, but I really believe that's the case. That is why they are so anti wolf hunting is because they, and you know, Jana being on the commission in Montana dealt with it firsthand. The wolf is their silver bullet to end us, to end me and to end you. So... That bleeds over into, you know, grizzly bears are a hot topic. Coyotes, we've, we've hunted coyote contests for years and years, and a lot of states are trying to outlaw coyote contests. And, you know, they call them coyote killing contests. Well, they're not a coyote killing contest. They're a coyote calling contest. There's rules. There's a lot of rules. And you have to, you know, go by the rules. I love doing coyote contests. I love hunting bears. I love hunting mountain lions. I had hound dogs for years and years. Now we have now we have decoy dogs. I got a couple of mountain curs that I can see laying out back right now that we use. And it it is an interesting dynamic of how the the fluffy predators, you know, the bobcats and lions and that that will kill you. That kill people, that eat people. People just lose their mind when you talk about hunting them. And they well, mother, it's Mother Nature's way. Let Mother Nature do it. You know, if if they eat the deer and the deer die off, and then that, well, that's Mother Nature's way. No, Mother Nature manages on a boom or bust system. Would the wolves and the coyotes eat all the deer and the elk? Yes, they would. Would that eventually kill off the the wolves and the coyotes? Uh, and yeah, and then the deer might bounce back. You're talking about a 150 year process. I don't want my kids and grandkids to have to wait around, you know, through that lull till the deer bounce back. You know, predator management is a must. And that's one thing we've really learned on our caller studies is that a lot of areas, some areas it's bears, some areas it's lions on the adult deer, some areas it's coyotes on the, on the fawns. But I love it. 
predator. If I had to hunt one thing the rest of my life, it would probably be coyotes. Janice always like, I don't get it, but she loves to hunt coyotes too, but she, I mean, she loves to hunt everything. I'm, I'm pretty much a diehard coyote hunter. And, you know, my dad got me into it when I was a kid because he worked on a sheep ranch. My family comes from a bunch of sheep ranchers and coyotes for public enemy number one. And from the time I was a little bitty kid, I remember sitting on the coyote stand with my dad. I remember he'd always tell me, I'd always ask him, you know, man, we ought to get you camouflage. You don't need camouflage. You just sit still. I was probably 20 years old before I got camouflage. You just sit still. Don't move. They'll come in. And they did. And even now, I mean, now we all, you know, camouflage is like gang colors. You got it. Everybody's got their camo that they're so loyal to. <laughs> uh, right? Everybody's got the, I'm going to tell you, you want to talk about me and Jana, we did along great. There is one subject that will get an eye roll out of either one of us, and that's when we start joking about the other. She's got a closet full of cryptic. I've got a closet full of Kuyu, although I do wear cryptic on her show and that because of sponsors and stuff. But I mean, ammo is like gang colors, and you don't, you don't, you don't mix those, you know, mix those lines. I win. So now we all wear camo, but I'm going to tell you, we killed a lot of coyotes wearing blue jeans, Levi jackets, and overshoes in the winter. That was our winter gear. And you'd go out and sit in the brush, and Dad would always, if he could see you move, he'd smack you. Don't move. That's the best camo. Don't move. And so, you know, that's how I grew up hunting coyotes. And first coyote I ever killed, we had our old sheepdog with us, and I nicked him, and that sheepdog ran out there ran him down and I thought man this type of coyotes and dogs is pretty fun we kind of turned that into a into a big deal there's a lot of guys that hunt coyotes with dogs now people ask me all the time how do you how do you learn how to do it best thing you can do is get you a call get you a hand call whatever you can afford whatever you have go out find some sagebrush if you got sagebrush or tall grass in the field there's probably a coyote hut Definitely around here where David and I live, we've got a ton of sagebrush and a ton of coyotes. And so they are plentiful around here. Talk to me a little bit about e-calls because that's kind of become the big thing in the last few years. You know, I actually work with Fox Pro quite a bit. I'm on staff with Fox Pro and that has really been a game changer. For years and years and years growing up, my dad still carries a little wood, thirsty hand call that... I've tried to buy it from him. I've tried to trade him guns for it, all kinds of crazy things, and he won't give it to me. And he's called so many kinds of that thing. For years and years, that's all we ever used, that little wood, Cersei, cottontail. Well, then one day I was talking to a buddy of mine. He says, yeah, he says, these guys are coming out with these electronic calls. And it was Burnham Brothers down in, down in Texas, and they had a call that you'd plug in a little cassette recorder to, and, would make a long cord and plug into the back of the speaker. So the speaker was sitting, you know, a hundred feet down there and we had these cassette tapes we'd use. And that to me kind of seemed a little more trouble than it was worth dragging our ladder around. But then when the Fox Pro started coming out and had a remote control on them, that was a game changer. And we use, there's so many different sounds now that you can use that you can just tailor your, your hunt to whatever the season is, whatever the country is. If you're hunting fawning grounds, if you're hunting 
in the spring when the pups are being born and coming out, the coyotes are just psycho. I mean, they have so many coyote sounds now you can use. It's just, it's amazing, you know. It's, I, I really love these Fox Pro game calls that we're using. Being involved with Fox Pro has been a lot of fun. Some of my buddies are, are pretty serious coyote hunters. I've had the chance to go to Alberta, Canada a couple times. And up there, those I mean, those coyotes up there, it's unbelievable. They look like polar bears coming in. It looks like five or six polar bears running in. They, you hardly ever call in just one. And they're huge and they're white. It's just, that's been some of the funnest coyote hunting I've, I've ever done there. But yeah, it, the electronic calls just gives you so many more options with sounds. You can set the call upwind of you a little ways. A lot of times these coyotes try to swing downwind to wind you and get an idea of what's making that crazy sound and you can put the call a little bit up way and sit down wind and kind of intercept those coyotes, especially in the brush and that when they're, they think they can hide from you. It's just, you know, it, it really, really opens up your, your options. I used to work at night shift. The, the 22-250 would live under the back seat of the truck. And, you know, I got off work at 6, 7 a.m. What I do, I wake out on every morning, especially out right. We were working it was a 20-minute drive. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and we had a lot of fun. You know, you get off shift and just couldn't wait to get off to go call coyotes. I've got to decoy over mountain curves before, and I know what that's about. And that is, that's the next level, you know. But guys can buy a $12 critter call, open read, and go out with no camo. I, I would recommend some shooting sticks and a, a decent yep. center fire. Doesn't have to be a, you know, not a 300 wind mag, but get you at least a 223, if not bigger, and go have fun. Yeah, you know what? You mentioned just the, you know, the little $12 call. Me and Jana hiked in a couple of years ago to one of my favorite stands in the world. It's about 10,000 feet in Colorado. And you got to hike. It takes about three and a half hours to get up there. My dad, when he was a kid, used to herd sheep up there. He'd tell me there's more coyotes up there than there are songbirds. You, you know, and we'd go up there. We've had some amazing stands in this place. And you spend all day hiking in and out of there to make one or two stands. We go up there, and I put the fox, carried the fox pro up there. I set it out, and I'm going through my sequence, all these sounds. And Jana puts her glasses up. She goes, I can see two coyotes. She goes, they're running away. I'm like, what? She tells me they're down there by the willow, so I get my glasses up. They're about 700 yards around the way. I took a diaphragm call, a triple, like you'd use to bugle elk with or cow call with, and you flip it upside down so it kind of takes the rasp out of it and got the long read on the bottom. And I did some pup wines with that, a couple howls, and the coyotes answered. So I did it again, and here they come. And I talked them all the way across this big old flight and called them up and killed a double right there. And it was with, a, you know, like you said, a $5 reed that I'd bought at Sportsman's Warehouse. And if you will practice with those reeds just a little bit, those diaphragm calls especially, it will blow your mind the sounds you can make with those things. I always turn mine when I'm doing coyote sounds off. If I'm using a double or triple, I flip it upside down. So you got the long read on the bottom. And it will blow your mind the howls you can make, the pup whines, you can make rabbit distress, all that kind of stuff for a $5 call. And then, you know, for another 8 or 10 bucks, you can buy you, you know, an open read like Wayne Carlton used to make that fighting cow call. I guarantee you there has been thousands of coyotes killed that have been howled in or used while that's been used as like a rabbit call because it just, that long open read call, you can make so many sounds with those things. It's just unbelievable. 
And so you don't have to have the five or six or seven hundred dollar Fox Pro. You know, and Fox Pro still makes those hand calls and the diaphragms because I mean they work and you can stick them in your shirt pocket. You're driving around, you know, in your work truck or something, you see a coyote run across the road and he's not really in a big hurry. Well you probably don't got your Fox Pro with you, but I always have a freaking diaphragm in my pocket. I don't care what we're hunting. If a coyote or a grouse walks across the road, elk hunting is paused until grouse is in the in the bag for dinner, and I we, I will pause any hunt to make sure coyote. You gonna shoot that coyote? Ruin the spot? I'm like, no, I'm gonna kill that coyote. I got a funny one for you. There was a guy that I grew up with, and in high school, he used to put a piece of grass between his thumbs and calling coyotes that way. He had a really good rendition of a rabbit call that he could just grab a piece of grass and do it. That coyote would come in, man, and he'd shoot it with his. I think it was a 30-30. He always carried that in his ranch truck. But I mean, <laughs> he would shoot them with yeah. that and call them in with a piece of grass. All you got to sound like is some kind of animal in distress or something that's not too intimidating that they think they can catch and kill. People ask me all the time, well, don't use a snowshoe sound out in the desert because there's no snowshoes. I'm not really sure the coyotes can sit out there and think, that doesn't sound like a jackrabbit. That sounds like a snowshoe. I'm not going over there. You know, if you sound like a distress sound, whether it's a bird, a rabbit, a fawn, you know, we use gray fox sounds all the time where there's no gray fox for our miles. I use pup sounds all winter long, and the pups have been out of the den and grown up for months. You know, you're just trying to find the sound that trips their trigger, that sparks that curiosity. Sometimes I think we way overthink it. Sometimes I think I'm the dumbest guy on the planet and that I'm never going to figure it out when I've had a few dry stands when I know there's a guy out there. But other times I think, you know, sometimes we way overthink it. Go in there, make some kind of a distress sound, make some kind of a coyote owl, and they're going to come check you out. The one thing I'll say about howling is I try not to get too aggressive. I always, when I do seminars and that, I tell people, when I was a little kid growing up, like grandpa who lives up the road from me a little ways he's turned on a hundred this year he has a real kind of a deep gravelly voice and when i was a little kid just the sound of grandpa's voice scared the crap out of me like you did not want to mess with grandpa you could just tell from the sound of him that he could handle it but my cousin joey it didn't matter what he said just the sound of his voice made me want to smack him and so i tell people when you're howling coyotes you want to be cousin joey you don't want to be grandpa so don't get out there and, you know, try to sound super aggressive and, and overpower everything while you're calling. Just, you know, be that smart aleck coyote that nobody wants to tolerate and that nobody's really scared of, you know, because then those older coyotes are like, you know, got some punk kid down the street trying to steal a rabbit. We're going to go in there and whip you. <laughs> so that's the one thing I'd say about howling. Don't get too, don't sound too aggressive. You can. You can be noisy. I I howl a lot, but I try not to sound too overbearing or too intimidating, I guess would be the term. And for people listening out there of why we are so adamant that coyotes need to be removed is at the end of the world, there's going to be two things left. It'll be cockroaches and coyotes. <laughs> I was pretty perturbed the other day watching a Hollywood movie. They had, they had the big bad wolf in there. Well, the big bad wolf story was just all wrong. And, you know, it's had the true... The true ending of Little Red Riding Hood is the wolf ate Little Red Riding Hood, right? And these stories were developed and designed to teach children that the wolf will eat you, right? It, at, the, at the end of The Boy Who Crawled Wolf, 
the wolf ate the boy. That was the true story, right? So coyotes are vicious, and you were a sheep farmer. Patrick's been around. I've been around. Coyotes will start to consume their prey while it's alive, and they don't do it cleanly, neatly. It's not Hollywood, you know, and, and this is, you know, coyotes are vicious. And to livestock, to wildlife, to fawns, if you don't manage those predators— they go unchecked. You've already mentioned it earlier. We get a we get a prey crash, and then the predators crash because there's no prey. We're not trying to re- eliminate and remove either one. We're just trying to bring those into balance and maintain cyclically every year the same population on the landscape. Exactly. You know, and you bring up a, a great point that I I post about on my social media once in a while when people, you know. They don't give me much trouble for hunting predators, but I'm here to tell you they give. I don't know why they feel it necessary to give the women a hard time in the hunting world, but Janet gets all kinds of, you know, grief from anti-hunters, and there's always guys thinking they got to give her advice. I mean, she's the killingest machine on the planet, and there's always guys thinking they got to give her advice. But people need to realize hunting is absolutely the most humane link in the food chain you get on instagram and go look at nature as metal or the dark side of nature any of those and you see the hyenas that are eating the guts out of a zebra or wildebeest while it's walking around and the and the calf or the bull still trying to nurse on its mother while on the other side of you know the hyenas of the lion is eating it while it's alive or, you know, a crop grabs a, a wildebeest or something and drags it in and drowns it. Or like you say, the coyotes, I've seen sheep, that the coyotes hold them down, eat their bag off, eat all their hind quarter off. And then, you know, the, the ewe is standing out there trying to nurse a lamb and she's got no udder left, got no bag left. And her hip joints exposed because the coyote just ate when he wanted, didn't kill her and let her go. Yeah. You know, that's, that's nature. The hunting is 100% the most humane link in the food chain and is the most humane part of of nature. So people can, you know, if people want to think I'm a, you know, I'm a dirty SOB or whatever for hunting predators, you know, they, they can think what they want. I've killed a ton of predators. I'll, I plan to kill a ton more before I give it up. And my goal is always, you know, one shot, they tip over and it's over with. You know, I'm not going to eat them alive. I'm not going to chew their hind leg off like they're doing the fogs. Not going to hang out underwater. Yeah, you, you know, it's just you look, look at all those videos of those grizzly bears that catch those catch the moose calves mm. and you know drag them off while mom's running around trying to find them. I mean, that that's nature. That ain't honey. Well, it brings you know, me. To- we are hanging down the most humane part of the whole process. We are, and you know, lions are another charismatic magnifauna that people get, and it's only here in the states that people get all upset that oh, you're going to shoot a lion. Do you know who's on board with harvesting lions? Everybody that lives in Africa. They <laughs> they hop fences in the night and drag people out. Right. Everybody that lives there's like, yeah, you shot a lion, good job. It's only people here that live in a comfortable high-rise building that have zero threat of being eaten by a lion tonight that are upset that lions are being harvested. You know, me and Jana did a podcast not too long ago about predator management with a pretty cool group of people. And there was a gal on there that had written a book. I think it's called Cries of the Savannah, 
something like that. And it's about hunting in Africa and how important it is to the way of life over there and how it, the hunting goes away, the wildlife goes away, how it affects all the people. And she told stories while we were on that podcast of kids that were walking to school and their biggest threat walking to school is the lions. A lion runs out of the bush, grabs this little girl and the other, you know, watches their sister be killed and eaten by a lion. They live with that every day. They live with it every day. But we're the devil because we want to manage those and keep them in check. But that's all right. I'll have that argument with them all day long. Well, John, I, I got kind of one more question here a little bit. You know, you're kind of the intersection between conservation, conservation for the future. <laughs> I mean, you're not the the end all tell all, but you're, like you said, the face of it. The, you're, you're the auction man. Where do you see the future of this going? That is a great question. That is a great question. Being on the wildlife board, I'd always have people say, you know, if we could just do this, we would get our deer herd back, or we'd get our elk herd back, or we'd get our sheep where we want. And after a few years of being involved with this, like we all are, I realized there is no back. There is no there. There is no destination, really. At least I don't feel like there is. I feel like it's a fight and a grind that we have to be passionate about every day for the rest of our lives. We have to be doing everything we can do every day for the rest of our lives. Now that includes, I got a couple grandkids that I think the world of that their favorite thing to do is get Jana on FaceTime and ask her about shooting bears. They love that. We have to bring the next generation along. We have to have something there for them to hunt so that they get involved and enjoy it. If I take my kids hunting and they don't see anything and they go for several years and they never pull the trigger, they're going to find something else to do. We have to stay involved. We have to be committed. We have to realize that because somebody hunts different than we do, that's okay. I'm a hunter. If it's a legal way of hunting, it may not be my cup of tea, but that's okay. I'm going to support it. I'm going to defend it. We have to realize that other hunters that do things differently are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. We don't need to light up other hunters and trash people, spend our time beating each other up on social media because somebody does something different or their passion is different than ours. The Antilles love that. They don't do that. You know, we do that. We need to learn that, you know, we're all on the same page. And that at the end of the day, if we don't, if we don't play on the same team, we're going to be in trouble. So where do I see it going? I see a lot of great people that are very dedicated, very into hunting and conservation. I see a lot of state agencies that are luckily have some great young biologists that are pro hunting. That's another thing we got to do. We, we got to recruit pro hunting biologists. Because there's plenty of them that don't really support hunting. You know, we need to recruit crow hunting biologists. And we need to just, everywhere we see we can make a difference, we need to do it. Whether it's go to a banquet, take the neighbor kid hunting that's always been interested, that's never, never had anybody to take him, take him fishing. You guys, you mentioned, you know, pheasant hunting. That's a great way to get youth involved. It's a great way. My first hunt was a pheasant hunt, you know. And uh, my dad wasn't a big bird hunter, but he knew I wanted to go. And so... That's what we did. I think the fight's going to get tougher. I think our problems are going to 
intensify. They're not making any more habitat out there. You know, they're making a lot of new houses. And we just got to be in the fight. We got to be in the fight every way we can be. We got to not be afraid to speak up. We got to be careful about the faith and the, and the, how we portray and project hunting. All those social media posts that we put out, you know, every time we do that, somebody's looking at it thinking, oh, that guy's a hunter. You know, are we, are we making us look like a bunch of Billy Bobs that shoot out of the back of the truck and break every law just because we can get away with it? Or do we show respect and do we portray our, our passion for conservation? That's the, that's what we need to be doing. So where do I see it going? You know, it's going to be a fight every day. We just got to be dedicated. And, and I don't think you could have said it any better because it is a daily thing and it doesn't matter whether you're an angler or a hunter, we are in the same exact situation. And if you don't think we are, just go do some Google searches. You'll find plenty. But yeah, it's been awesome having you on the show and getting to know you. How do people get in contact with you, follow you, those kind of things? I'm on Facebook. Just John Bear on Facebook. If you can't find me, just look up Jana. She's easier to find. And I usually comment on all of her stuff. So you can find me on Facebook, John Bear. On Instagram, I'm John Bear Auctioneer. And, you know, shoot me a message. My email is bearauctions at gmail.com. And, you know, if anybody has anything they want to talk about, any questions about anything going on with you know, anything we've talked about, I'm always game for talking predator management, auctions, knives, you name it. I will say this, the great thing about having a wife like Janet is she knows everybody in the business. And so if there's somebody that reaches out about something that we don't know about, she knows who to get them in touch with. So she's really good about that, getting people in touch with, with other people in the industry and the hunting business. And it's a good life. It's a lot of fun being, being as involved as we are and and, you know, especially seeing Janet do what she does, it's, it's a lot of fun and, you know, yeah, reach out. If anybody has any questions or anything they want to talk about, give me a shout. Well, last two questions. First one is what's your favorite species to hunt and how do you prepare it? If you had to pick one, one up and one species, what, what are we going hunting for? What are we eating? How are you cooking it? Oh, so I got to pick something that we can eat because I ain't using no dang cotton. <laughs> yeah. We got to pick something you're going to eat. I would say probably elk. I really, really like elk. And man, just as a kid growing up, my dad used to just fry those elk steaks up, cook them slow, fry them up with potatoes and green beans. And when I go home to see my folks, they they still cook that up for me. And I I love it. You know, elk burger, you can put elk burger in anything. It just makes it better. So I'd say elk's probably my favorite to eat species if i had to just hunt one thing the rest of my life it'd probably be coyotes <laughs> but i guess if i gotta eat it i'm gonna be pretty hungry <laughs> you're gonna be pretty hungry <laughs> so what's in the what's in store in the future what's coming up for you that your bucket list kind of stuff well jana has a mountain goat permit here in the u.n is uh, this fall here in Utah. So we are really excited about that. She's been wanting out to go for a long time and the things worked out this year. So we're really excited about that and going to video that so she can put it on her show. I don't, I have a general season muzzleloader deer tag right here by the house that will be a fun hunt. It's always a fun hunt, but we both 
have Prince of Wales black bear tags for next spring that we drew. And before I knew I drew Prince of Wales, I booked a grizzly hunt by Unicleet in North Alaska. So an inland grizzly hunt, I am, that is bucket list number one for me, my whole life. So we're going to check that off. We hunted grizzlies a couple of years ago and didn't get one. Had a good hunt. Janice shot a giant black bear like 10 minutes into the hunt. Had a great hunt, but didn't get a grizz. So we're going to go check that off the bucket list with a little like this next spring. So, Well, obviously people can follow along Skullbound, but tell Jenna that uh, oh, yeah. Bow Spiders Mountain yep. Goat film is live as of yesterday. So we're uh, excited about that. She can sit down and watch it. And then I'm headed on Monday to go uh, moose hunt and i'll be with my dad who's a resident so if we come across the bear it uh it might just not make it what a great what a great thing to be able to go share that experience with your dad you know check those bucket list things and be able to do it with your dad you know good luck i hope it turns out better than you could ever imagine well it without a little bit of hardship you know misery loves company but like patrick manna says there's nothing better than a pleasant misery and so we're gonna if you don't suffer and everything goes to plan the whole time it's like yeah that was fun we got it it's on the wall but when there's a little bit of that suffering involved then you really remember it and it needs to be just enough suffering that for six months or a year you're like i'm not quite sure if i want to repeat it but at 12 months you're like no i'll do it again you know and it makes it adds to the story it adds to the experience jana shot a sheep here a couple years ago in montana and she hunted well she scouted all summer long and then they hunted 17 days straight i believe i went up there two different times and hunted with her and didn't get anything and i mean it was right down to the bitter end and she got a great ram and she still talks about that about how much meaning the hardship and the trial added to the experience you know it sucks when you're going through it but when it works out and you can look back at it it makes for a great story it just it adds so many memories to the to those adventures. So, yeah, you gotta you gotta have a little, you know, you gotta have some sore feet, sore back that you can remember. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course... Please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.